0: are listening to a sermon from the Pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, tonight, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Job, We're continuing our exposition in this Old Testament book, an incredible book, and tonight we're going to be reading together chapter 4. You'll find this on page 418 of the Pew Bible, and we'll read verses 1 through 21. Hear the word of God. Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who is stumbling, and you've made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember, who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they're consumed. The roar of the lion and the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. Now a word was brought to me stealthily, my ear received the whisper of it. Amid thoughts from visions of the night when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me and trembling which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants he puts no trust. and his angels he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. Between morning and evening they're beaten to pieces, they perish forever without anyone regarding it. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? Do they not die, and that without wisdom? Well, last time we heard Job's doleful lament over the misery of his condition. He lost everything. He lost his children, his possessions, his health, even the support of his wife. And in the midst of her own despair, she had lost heart and told him to curse God and die. And yet Job did not sin with his lips, and it was a magnificent triumph of God's grace. His three friends came to sympathize with him, and they did not speak for seven days. They simply sat with him and tried to enter into his misery and his grief. But after a week of silence, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He's sitting on the ash heap. He's covered in grime and filled with confusion. As David Atkinson observes, Job is bereft and bewildered and in pain. With a heartfelt, emotion-filled outburst, he expresses his deep sorrow. And so deep and extensive was his suffering that he wished he had never been born. Everything for him was wearisome. Life had no joy, no relish, no savor. And in his lament, he wondered outwardly why it was that he hadn't been stillborn. If God knew he was going to suffer like this, why not nip life in the bud? Job knows that God is sovereign. He acknowledges this trial was from him. Chapter 3, why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? You see, the atheist has nothing but chance to explain his own suffering. At least Job can ascribe his misery to the infinite and eternal God. He knows that God ordained it, even though he doesn't know why. So from chapter 4 all through chapter 27, we find three cycles of speeches. Each friend speaks and Job replies. And this cycle is repeated three times. The cycles are not perfectly symmetrical because Zophar says nothing in the third cycle. But Job's well meaning friends try to minister to him, but end up only exacerbating his confusion. Because you see, it is extremely difficult to minister to a depressed person. Nothing seems right, everything is wrong. The world is under a cloud. Life has no purpose. It all seems so empty, and hope, if there is any, is but a flicker. Try to encourage a depressed person with biblical promises, and he thinks that you're criticizing his lack of faith. Try to urge the depressed person to some activity, and he believes that you're disapproving of his lifestyle. Try to boost the depressed person's morale, and he views it as a crack on his poor attitude. Nothing is right. Depression colors everything and it's hard to know what to say to him because as Solomon observes, a crushed spirit dries up the bones. Such a person always looks on the dark side and the effects even reach his physical being because it dries up the bones, it saps the energy, it eats away his strength and it dampens his outlook. A crushed spirit is enveloped with the chilling fear that God has forgotten. The future looks dark and foreboding, and there is no comfort or consolation, and life seems like running in waist deep water, resistance at every step. And the moments are filled with sadness and apathy, and Job is on the brink of despair. So Eliphaz is the first to speak, and it's, he seems to be the informal leader of the three friends. Having heard Job's outburst in chapter 3, Eliphaz can no longer remain silent. It's possible that this is the oldest and the wisest and the gentlest and even the most courtly or polite of the three men. He has a deep faith in God's transcendent holiness and a deep experience of God making himself known, according to Atkinson. And notice how he opens his speech by recognizing Job's true piety. This is a man that's instructed many and has strengthened weak hands and upheld stumbling. But now that Job is afflicted, Eliphaz accuses him of sinful impatience. And so he exhorts Job in the fear of God and tells him to follow the ways of integrity. And I think this counsel of Eliphaz is a little window on his shallow perspective. Those who fear God and walk uprightly do not suffer. They don't. They're blessed. So the major premise for Eliphaz and his friends, as we'll find, is this statement. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. That's his theme. All things being equal, of course, you and I both know that that statement is true. There's going to be a harvest that we're going to reap. But in Eliphaz's thinking, there was no nuance, no room for mystery, he sees only a one-to-one correspondence between act and consequence. If your actions are righteous, you'll prosper. If your actions are unrighteous, you will suffer. The universe, according to him, is this tightly controlled, well-ordered ordered moral order. The godly prosper, the ungodly suffer. It's a very simplistic outlook, and it leaves no room for the purpose of God and the mystery of evil and the shrapnel of sin. Not everything we reap here arises from something we've sown. Even Job's horrific afflictions were not the result of his own sin. In a fallen world, God's people may suffer many tribulations. That doesn't mean that we've sinned. It means the world is cursed. For purposes known to him, God may allow his children to suffer and be afflicted. He might want to chastise us for former sins. He might want to expose the hidden strength of our corruption. Perhaps he wants to bring to light the deceitfulness of the heart, or develop a closer dependence upon him. He has his purpose. He's just, and he rewards virtue, and he punishes wickedness, but... True and perfect justice may oftentimes be delayed. God rules this world according to his wisdom and by his power, and he has his own purpose, which is unfolding even as I speak. And sometimes the outworking of his plan seems contrary to justice. Wasn't it Asaph who said this? I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Here was a faithful, conscientious Jew who struggled with the apparent incongruity of God's treatment of the righteous. It wasn't until he went to worship and discerned the ultimate end of things that he understood. Because that's where we find perfect justice. All things will be righted. Justice delayed does not mean justice discarded. There will be a day of judgment. Though the wicked sprout like grass, says David, and all evildoers flourish, they're doomed to destruction forever. And it was only from the eternal perspective that Asaph was able to see things clearly. So Eliphaz applies this principle of final judgment to the circumstances of the present day. And he has a valid syllogism, for those of you who have taken logic. It's a valid syllogism, but it's a false premise, which leads to a false conclusion. All adversity is punishment. Job's suffering is adversity. Therefore, Job's suffering is punishment. False is the claim that all adversity is punishment. Not in a fallen world. A person may experience adversity for any number of reasons. And God will reward virtue and punish sin perfectly on the final day, but we cannot say that all present suffering is the punishment for sin. God has his own timetable. He has his own reasons for the way he rules the world. And Eliphaz is interpreting Job's suffering as a punishment for some sin. After all, he must reap what he sows, right? Other principles are at work, as we've seen from chapter 1. And I don't mean that God is unjust, but I do mean that his ways are mysterious. He's an infinite God. There's no way we can comprehend him. Matthew Henry says, those who have the least share of miseries must say that God is kind. And those who have the largest share must say that he is, not say that he's unjust, But many are made much more miserable than others in this life who are not at all more sinful. We should not call one a great sinner simply because he's a great sufferer. It's wrong to equate particular sufferings with particular sins. The disciples themselves, at least for the time, operated on the same assumption His disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered them, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So according to the secret, unrevealed counsels of God, this affliction would serve his plan. And though everything he does is just, sometimes you and I can't understand it. There may be other principles he uses simultaneously with justice. He may permit believers to suffer to prove the veracity of his grace. And Job lost everything but his own life, and yet he did not sin with his lips, and that was grace. The devil was wrong. He was proved a liar, and God's glory was magnified. And so Eliphaz goes on to claim that he had some sort of mystical experience in verses 12 and 15. Through a dream or a vision, he was reminded of human depravity and the consequences of sin. And he says, mortal man cannot be in the right before God. Hence, Job should own up to his past and take responsibility for his sins. That's his comfort. He goes on in chapter 5 to extend his speech and to explain more fully his superficial understanding. He mentions the fool whose folly adversely affects himself and his family. And his perspective on this fallen world is tinged with a hint of fatalism. He says, affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground, but man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. So in the background of his thinking is the sovereignty of God who ordains whatsoever comes to pass. He raises up and he brings low and he makes well-being and he creates calamity. So Job, he says, I advise you to confess your sin and repent of your iniquity and turn to the Most High. God does things great and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He frustrates the crafty, he thwarts the worldly wise, he saves the needy and the poor, and those whom God reproves are blessed. So don't despise discipline, Job. If you just submit, receive our counsel, you'll be better off for it. You can be happy if you'll simply admit your sin. And isn't that the height of arrogance and insensitivity to talk about happiness? Here's a man who'd lost everything. And his grief was deep and his loneliness was profound. His ten children are dead and can Eliphaz have any idea of his suffering? He's a bit like Pharaoh who demanded bricks after taking away the straw. I think one thing this passage does is warn us against the false and destructive teaching of the prosperity gospel. Do you see the connection? Well-known preachers equate health and wealth with the amount of faith. If only your faith is strong enough or generous enough or active enough, you'll prosper. Eliphaz equated suffering with sin. The preachers equate prosperity with faith. And, of course, the way you demonstrate your faith is to send them money. And their philosophy is this. If you're prosperous, God must be pleased. Suffering is equated with God's punishment, prosperity with blessing. They're operating under the same principle as Eliphaz, only it's flipped. All prosperity is for those with true faith. You're experiencing prosperity. Therefore, you must have true, saving faith. But you see, this overly simplistic and erroneous worldview is not biblical. We have to recognize that some things go beyond reason and logic. God is the author of logic, but he cannot be confined or limited to it. He's an infinite God. He created the universe, and he can do what he wants. And while he'll never deny himself, he may rise above and go beyond reason. That's what Paul means when he says how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Or as the King James puts it, past finding out. The secret things don't belong to us. His ways can be dark and mysterious. Like Eliphaz, the prosperity preachers are deceived into thinking they can fully comprehend God. Let's be content this evening with the things that are revealed and admire our sovereign God. And I think this also highlights the distinction between knowledge and wisdom, doesn't it? Eliphaz was knowledgeable, we have to admit. For the most part, he was orthodox. He understood God's justice and sovereignty and goodness and transcendence. His problem was not knowledge. His problem was the application of knowledge. You see, we're told in Psalm 111 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. The fear of the Lord, this healthy reverence. We venerate the Most High. We know He exists. We know His attributes. Eliphaz knew those things. But that's only the beginning of wisdom. He's barely inside the door. To grow in wisdom, one must practice the fear of God and apply it to every situation of life. And wisdom realizes the sovereignty and the freedom of God who does as He pleases. And it submits to his lordship and accepts whatever he does with believing resignation. That's wisdom. We not only know his attributes from the catechism, we meditate on their implications for life. And it's not easy to do. This requires time and experience and it demands maturity. As Hebrews says, solid food is for the mature, those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. I'm thankful for the babes in Christ. I really am. I'm not thankful for those who stay there. The deeper mysteries and the fuller understanding is for those who grow in wisdom. They learn the first principles, they build upon them and develop the power of discernment. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, and the one who gets understanding, for the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. But then there's a final lesson. I think this teaches us to remember that God calls us to speak the truth seasonably. You see, by declaring truth, Eliphaz was trying to rouse Job out of his depression We know God is just, Job. He's powerful, righteous, and true. He's to be feared, and your affliction is proof of sin. So turn to him, and you'll be happy. It was a very clumsy and shallow and unseasonable batch of advice. Eliphaz wasn't doing a good job of applying the truth of God, and Job also understood the truths of God's justice and transcendence. He could have reasoned just like Eliphaz, but it didn't make any sense. There was nothing Job had done to warrant such a severe penalty. He was sincere in faith. He was conscientious in worship. He was faithful in his service. He was generous to the poor, kind to the needy, patient with the ignorant, and he followed the Lord. That's why it was so confusing, because God himself called him blameless and upright. Nothing made sense. And here's Eliphaz saying, pull yourself together. That's just what Job could not do. But it might have helped him to know that he wasn't alone. He could have said, my dear suffering friend, your experience is not unique. It happens to believers all the time. Remember the triumph over the prophets Baal when Elijah feared for his life and Jezebel had threatened and he fled into the wilderness where he wanted to die? Didn't Jonah sink into a depression after being swallowed by the fish and the great city of Nineveh repented at his preaching? The apostle Paul himself says that while he was in Asia, he despaired of life itself. Job, sometimes for reasons known only to him, God hides his face from us. Our faith is tested and our spirits are refined and our character is developed because he's sovereign. And there is such a thing as spiritual desertion. Though God will never forsake you, He may take away the sense of His nearness. He leads us through periods of spiritual dryness and feelings of desertion, Job. And it's difficult, but it's not uncommon. You're not alone. And our Sovereign Father has His own reasons. Just knowing that I think helps to explain what may have seemed inexplicable to him in his depression. The advice of Isaiah is appropriate. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. And I think we see Job as a perfect example of someone who did that very thing. May God enable us to follow his example. Amen. Let's pray together. Ah. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this very real and raw book about a man who suffered greatly. We thank you for the teaching that comes from this advice of Eliphaz, warning us against false assumptions. And we pray that if there are those who are depressed, that you'll teach them about your loving sovereignty and the fact that they're not alone. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information, to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.